Welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, a podcast for the politically aware brought to you by the Alliance Party. Content for this episode was recorded on Tuesday, September 29, 2020. And a good evening to you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the podcast. And this evening, we're talking with Rita Bosworth, founder and executive director of an organization known as the Sister District Project. Sister District is an organization dedicated to the idea of turning states blue by winning state legislative elections. They pair up, or sister, volunteers from deep blue districts with carefully targeted races in swing districts, where flipping control of the state legislature will advance progressive policy and help end gerrymandering. Their volunteers canvas, phone bank, write postcards, text bank, and fundraise for candidates. Since launching in the wake of the 2016 elections, the Sister District Project has grown to over 45,000 volunteers across the country. They have raised over $3 million in small-dollar donations directly to candidates. Sister District is an organization founded and led by women. Four out of five people at the organization have quit their regular jobs to work with the organization full-time. Our guest today, Rita Bosworth, is the founder and executive director of the Sister District Project. Rita started Sister District a week after the 2016 presidential election. Prior to Sister District, Rita was a federal public defender for 12 years. She received her undergraduate degree from UC Davis, where she was also varsity captain of the rowing team, and she received her law degree from Stanford. After law school, she clerked for the Honorable Henry Kennedy in Washington, D.C., She now lives in San Jose, California, with her husband and two sons. The Alliance Party After Dark would like to emphasize that the views Rita Bosworth expresses are hers based on her experiences and not that of any entity or organization with which she may be affiliated. Ms. Rita Bosworth, welcome to the Alliance Party After Dark, and thank you for joining us this evening. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Good. You know, we, we all feel it. The country is in trouble. Extreme partisanship, which has been building for decades, is exploding all over the country. And, you know, the real tragedy is that people are getting hurt, not only physically, but they're losing their livelihoods as economic disparity continues to widen. There's a fever of intolerance, whether it's expressed toward people of a different skin color or nationality or religious belief or sexual preference. And Instead of inspiring us to do better, our politicians are working hard to convince us that their opposition will take us on an even more doomed journey to the abyss. So there's a lot of undesirable stuff going on these days, and it doesn't seem to be slowing down. Yet there are people such as yourself and organizations working toward making things better. So what is the Sister District Project, and what approach is it taking to steer our ship away from the maelstrom of destruction? Well, I thought you did a really nice job of giving an overview, and I'll just take you back to 2016, which is when I founded the organization about a week after Donald Trump was elected. And I live in a very blue area in California, a very progressive area. And in 2016, that was a very strange feeling for those of us in California, because that's actually a year where we had a great election in our state. We elected a supermajority of Democrats to our state legislature. We were choosing between two Democrats for our Senate seat, which ended up being Kamala Harris. Uh, but the rest of the country just felt like it was going in the opposite direction. And that there was a little bit of cognitive dissonance there. And the idea that Democrats won the popular vote by almost 3 million votes, but didn't win the White House was really jarring. 
And it drove home the point that Democrats are a majority of the country, but they don't have a majority of electoral power. And that's what I really grabbed onto was this concept of why do we have the overwhelming majority of voters, but we don't have the power. And it's not just the White House, it's the Senate, it was the Congress, it was the courts, it was the states. Democrats really are a majority that does not have uh, an, an, a representative amount of power. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to drill down and figure out why is that happening and how can we fix it? And the other thing that I noticed was that a lot of people like me feel powerless because we live in these deep blue districts. We've done what we can within our own borders. We've elected progressive representatives. We vote, but we feel like we want to do more and we're not quite sure what. And so my thought was, look, Democrats, we have an advantage, which is our numbers. We are more people than the other side. And there's just, we're out of balance. And part of that is because of the electoral structures and institutions that favor geography over population, like the Electoral College and the Senate. Um, Those are real institutional barriers to majority power. But there is still something we can do. And my thought was, okay, we've got to organize the people primarily in those deep blue areas of the country. And we've got to channel those resources to other parts of the country where a Democrat is in a competitive election and where winning that seat is going to make a difference. And by make a difference, I mean bring balance back. Let's bring some equilibrium back to our representation because that will reduce some of this hyper-partisanship we're seeing when we bring people closer to the middle and they're forced to compromise. So that was the idea with Sister District was let's think a little more smartly about this, Democrats. Let's use our resources more efficiently, more effectively. Let's go after races where really getting in there and winning can make a strategic difference. And my conclusion when I looked at that was we've got to win state legislatures. They are kind of the unsung leverage of power here that people don't talk about. You don't hear about them in the national news. But the truth is that state legislatures control redistricting. And that means that in the 34 states where the political party in charge gets to draw voting district boundaries, they can enormously impact the amount of representation that their constituents have. And, you know, in in 2016, there was a real... I mean, everybody was frantic, right? That was Mm -hmm. a really difficult moment. And I think immediately Democrats said, well, we've got to focus on flipping Congress because that seemed like the most obvious of the three branches of government that we were going to be able to make progress on in in the 2018 midterm election. But I went one step further and I said, okay, but if we want to win Congress in a long-term and sustained manner, we have to win the states because the states are the ones that are drawing the voting district lines for Congress. And you're seeing over and over and over again, uh, states and districts where Democrats are actually getting more net votes, but Republicans are maintaining power because of how they're structuring the voting rules and the districting rules. So um, that was the thinking behind starting Sister District was let's, let's be smarter about how we're deploying resources, let's be more strategic, and let's actually address where the levers of power are, and let's get into that. So there's uh, gerrymandering is certainly one thing, and that's something worth attacking. I know in Missouri here where uh, gerrymandering is on the ballot yet again, um, but there's other systemic issues too at at play, right? I mean, um, there are other things that can be done to uh, alleviate the uh, issue of gerrymandering, perhaps like multi-winner districts or something like that. Is is that an idea that you've played with? 
Sure. I mean, I think there are a lot of, of angles you can take and um, you know, but the, the, for me, what it really comes down to is this. I mean, you experienced this firsthand in Missouri where the voters uh, made a decision that they wanted clean elections, they wanted clean districting, and yet the Republicans in charge decided, nope, we don't want that because that's going to chip away at the power that we have. We saw in Florida with Amendment 4, voters in Florida voted overwhelmingly to restore the voting rights of felons, I think by about 60%. And yet the Republicans in the Florida legislature found a way to make sure that um, those folks that the Florida voters unquestionably wanted to be able to vote could not vote by ensuring that they needed to pay all of their court fees, which they're now saying they don't even know what the court fees are. So the problem here isn't that there aren't solutions. The problem is that when you have this extreme partisanship and when you have particularly right now Republicans um, holding on to all of the strings of power in the states, they will not allow any of these changes to actually happen. And so that's why I keep coming back to the idea of if we want any change, whether it's ranked choice voting, whether it's independent redistricting commissions, we actually have to win elections in the state legislatures in order to wrest that power away from the Republicans who in many states right now are just not going to give an inch. Right. Yeah. That's a that's a big ask right there. That's a that's a big task to uh, to win uh, state legislatures. And I'm sure you're going to find some um, some some success in that. And this is a big year, 2020, a big election year. It's probably one of the most pivotal election years we've seen. What are your biggest challenges this year? Well, I think, as I said before, there's no question that Democrats are a majority of the country. The question is, do they get to vote in a free and fair election? And it's notable that when Republicans take control of a state government, the first thing they do, it's not outlaw abortion, it's not get rid of gay marriage, it's they make it harder to vote. That is the first thing they do. And that should tell you all you really need to know about why we are not really having free and fair elections in this country. It's because in so many states that are controlled by Republicans, their number one goal is to make it as hard as possible to vote because they know that they're not the majority and they know that if they allow people to vote, they will lose power. So I think that is really the biggest challenge. It's not lack of enthusiasm. Democrats and progressives are fired up. We have seen nothing but increased energy since Donald Trump was elected, which I find very heartening. Um, we have resources now. I mean, over the past four years, you've seen Democrats donating in larger and larger numbers. Um, obviously, Republicans have a lot of resources, too, but we're able to kind of hold our own there. The biggest problem is can people vote? And of course, right now, we can't change the makeup of state legislatures in time for the November 3rd election in the next five weeks. So we just have to right now make sure we have the most overwhelming voter turnout in the history of the country mm -hmm. in order to make very clear what people want. Um, if we don't, as we all know, Donald Trump and the Republicans are laying the groundwork to call this an illegitimate re election and to take this all the way up to the Supreme Court, which they are handpicking their, their judges. I mean, this is all very scary stuff. This is the kind of thing where you know that your country is not going to actually be, um, the results of the election aren't actually gonna be decided by the voters. That is by design. Um, so that's the biggest challenge. Uh, we have to get out the vote in such an overwhelming amount that it overcomes even all of these barriers that Republicans are putting in place to try to hold on to power. Yeah. 
Well, gerrymandering goes both ways, though, too. I mean, I, I'm not I'm just playing devil's advocate here, though, but there are districts uh, that are heavily gerrymandered toward the Democratic uh, advantage as well. So are, are these issues going to be resolved as well? Yeah, that's true. And, you know, gerrymandering has been something that both parties engage in. So it's not to say this is not that this is only something Republicans do. But that said, it is right now one of the main tools that Republicans in particular have used to leverage power. Um, You know, in 2010 was the last census year. That also happened to be a backlash election against Barack Obama's uh, presidency. Mm -hmm. And so the Republicans very smartly that year invested a lot of resources into states. They won big in states in 2010. And unfortunately, that meant they had an outsized amount of power for redistricting that happened in 2011 and 2012. We are still living with those maps because those maps last an entire decade until the next redistricting cycle occurs. So while it is true that both parties gerrymander, it is also true that right now it is Republicans who are really weaponizing the gerrymander and and using it to keep themselves in power. I mean, one of the most egregious examples, I think, is Wisconsin, where in 2018, 54 percent Democrats got 54 percent of the votes for their state legislature and 54% of votes for their Congress members. And yet Republicans have almost a supermajority in their state legislature. And they have almost twice as many Congress people than Democrats do. I mean, that is the power of gerrymandering. So, you know, there's definitely a lot of talk about bringing the process to the middle and making it, making it fair, as opposed to Democrats getting power and then them just doing the gerrymandering themselves. Um, and you know that's kind of that's kind of the next step. We have to actually get Democrats elected first, and then do whatever work we're going to do to to bring balance back to the process. Um, but the truth is that right now it really is something that's been weaponized. And I will say, with the Supreme Court decision last summer, which essentially said that federal courts can't do anything about partisan gerrymandering, this is this is the Wild West. I mean, this yeah. is free range. It will only get worse and worse. We're going to see more and more egregious tactics as they struggle to maintain their grasp on power. And when you've got the federal court system essentially now being banned from doing anything about it, um, that's, you know, Republicans see that as a as a bright green light. So, yes, you're right to say that it's something both parties do. But right now it is definitely something Republicans are doing Um you know, to to really embitter the other side. And and they're not really hiding it. They're not really hiding how overt they are about it. So yeah. it's something we need to be paying attention to and we need to put an end to sooner than later. Yeah. Well, I, um, I we, we talked a little bit about uh, multi-winner districts and, and single, uh, single winner districts or, or single representative districts. Um, I want to revisit that again because I just looked up some statistics a short time ago that says of the 7,383 seats in all the 50 state legislatures, um, a little bit over 1,000 of them, 1,082, are elected from districts with more than one member. So that would be for a total of 14.7%. Um, so is that is that, do you think, a way of possibly mitigating the effects of gerrymandering? And if so, um, is there any is it is your emphasis now just on electing legislatures or is it um, also for you know fixing some of the systemic problems? Yeah, that's a good question. We are we are strictly an electoral organization. So 
we are only focused on elections and kind of organizing this progressive democratic energy in parts of the country and using it to help um, candidates in other parts of the country. I mean, the thing about sister district is we are really expert at um, leveraging out of state capacity. That's what we do. And a little side note, that's actually made our work really, really important since the pandemic hit because you don't have candidates out knocking on doors right now. You can't have people out in their communities. What you can do is you can be making phone calls, you can be donating, you can be sending text messages. Those are all things you can do remotely. And so um, we actually happen to be perfectly poised for this moment where so much remote capacity is needed. Um, but that said, so our entire focus is on helping get these folks elected. Most of our volunteers do not live in the districts where they are supporting a candidate. Uh, for example, our San Francisco team right now is sistered with three candidates in Arizona. So they fundraise, they phone bank, they write postcards. Um, you know, pre-pandemic, they would have been flying there to knock on doors. But when it comes to lobbying those candidates to actually get policy passed once they're in office, um, we aren't necessarily their constituents. So that's, you know, there are a lot of solutions out there and we certainly try to do our part to make sure that legislators are talking to one another and getting ideas from one another and sharing things that worked. Um, and that's something we, we wanna continue working on in the future as we get more and more folks elected. But in terms of actually pushing for any policies, that's, that's a pretty state and district specific decision that has to be made by, by the folks in their own state. Sure. Well, there is one barrier of entry, that, and I've asked uh, this of several people within our own organization here, um, and that is, uh, just quite frankly, it's the pay, right? Uh, in California there, you have full-time uh, state legislatures. I believe New York has it as well, and they, they both get paid actually into the six-digit uh, uh, figure. Um, Missouri here, they keep you employed, or they, they want you in the capital here for like five to six months out of the year. Uh, and they pay just slightly less than 36000 per year. So you're basically on your own for the rest of the months. Uh, I think it's New Hampshire is like the worst offender. They pay like uh, $200 for a two-year term. Uh, it's really hard to recruit legislatures, you know, and, and you hate to think that things come down to money all the time, but, you know, we all have to, you know, feed our families and so on and pay our bills. Um, how, are you at all looking at how to recruit people in light of the fact that you can't get necessarily uh, fair representation from people that can't afford to be a legislature, no matter how much they want to try. That's, that's, that's a great point. And it's a real problem. And we definitely see that in so many places, the door to running for office is just closed because you have working folks who can't afford to leave their job, they can't afford to um, leave their family, they need childcare. Campaigning is a full-time job and you can't do that and also pay your bills. It's a real problem. So while we do not recruit candidates, we actually look first at the states and the districts that we think need attention. And then once those candidates are selected, we look at those candidates and decide who we're gonna support. But one thing that we do um, uh, very, much insist on is that we want to lift up the types of candidates who aren't usually the ones that are going to get the free pass into office. We want to look at women and people of color and people in the LGBTQ community and people that don't have necessarily the name recognition and the bank accounts that a lot of politicians have. So that's part of our mission actually is to look for those folks 
who would be wonderful representatives of their communities, Mm -hmm. but don't have a lot of the tools and resources. And that's where a group like us can come in and help out. Yeah, it's good. That's really good. Now, I'm looking at one of the success stories, which is Virginia. And um, I'm going to jump on the other side of the table here and play devil's advocate. Uh, The Democratic Party uh, had a recent win, I believe it was 2018. They won majority in the the legislature of Virginia. And um, they've come under a lot of criticism almost, you know, within the first six months or so because, well, actually within the the first 60 days, they dismantled decades of Republican-approved policies, and and then they advanced a broad progressive agenda, uh, consisting of a of a number of Democratic priorities, summing up in like over fourteen hundred bills, I think it was. And so, you know, I'm not going to argue the content of these bills. Most of them, I think, were pretty good. They had to do with you know equal rights, voting rights, protections for transgenders, and so on. And I think most people, you know, Democrats and Republicans, can get behind a lot of these ideas, but the sheer number of bills and, and, and the complete disregard for the conservatives in the state leads me to believe that these particular Democrats, and they got drunk in a sense with their newfound power and turned to governing only for the narrow majority of people that voted for them and, and disregarding all others. In other words, you know, the table was turned and it, uh, at least from my perspective, it seemed like uh, things uh, went just the opposite way. So, I have to wonder, you know, what will happen next time the Republicans gain control in Virginia. And it's not a matter of if, but it's a matter of when. And, you know, I'm not going to ask you to defend the Democrats in this particular victory, but um, assuming that you're scoring some state victories, and and I I fully believe that you will, um, what forces will be in place to keep it from turning into, you know, another zero-sum perpetual game? That's so funny because I read Virginia so differently than you do. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was 2019 and Democrats flipped the Virginia Senate, flipped the Virginia House, turned Virginia into the first Democratic trifecta state in the South. So now Democrats control the governorship, the Senate and the House. And the thing you have to see about Virginia, um, you know, what you apparently see is them ramming through a progressive agenda. What I see is that these are things that should have happened a decade ago, but Republicans stopped them from happening. So Virginia is a state that went for Barack Obama in 2008, went for Barack Obama in 2012, went for Hillary Clinton by five points in 2016. In 2016, it had a Democratic governor. It had two Democratic senators. And yet in 2016, seven of their 11 congressional seats were controlled by Republicans. Mm -hmm. And the Republicans had almost a supermajority in their House of Delegates. That is not a close call. That is not... Uh, a state where, you know, the two parties are so close and they kind of have to hammer it out. That is a state where Republicans have boldly and unabashedly seized power, seized the majority of power for themselves and stopping progress, even though that was the will of the majority of Virginians. And so I think that in 2019, when Democrats finally won the proportionate amount of power, they were able to bring balance to the state and bring it up to the present day to the policies that the majority of voters wanted. And these were not radical policies. They got rid of Lee Jackson Day, which was a state holiday celebrating Confederate generals. Mm -hmm. Um, They made election day a holiday. They wanna make it easier for people to vote. That should not be a partisan issue, 
but it is because Republicans know that when people vote, Republicans lose. It's not like they went crazy and enacted a, a socialist agenda. They made changes that were reasonable and rational and, and that their people wanted. Um, so I see this completely differently from you. And I will. I think it's notable that you know, the, the presidential candidates aren't even playing in Virginia this year because they know that Virginia is is a blue state. So I I don't think that this is there's going to be a lot of backlash to this. I think we actually the Demo the Republicans were holding us back as they are in so many states. And now the the Virginians are finally able to get through the policies that they want, that they've been voting for. And now finally, we've broken that stranglehold of power that Republicans were seizing um, and allowing the people to truly be heard. Good. Okay. Good. Fair enough. Um, so uh, let's discuss the Supreme Court a little bit, uh, the potential problems that are going to come up with the Supreme Court decision. We, we, it looks like, the, um, uh, looks like we're going to have another confirmation possibly before this election. So now there's going to be a 6-3 uh, majority on the Supreme Court, 6-3 being conservatives versus uh, um, liberal or, or more progressives. Um, you talked before about how that could affect this election. Could you go into a little bit more detail about that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that uh, Republicans are doing what they do, which is they're fulfilling their number one value, which is to get more power. And I, I think it was foolish if anybody really thought that they wouldn't do this if the opportunity came up. So that itself is not a, not a surprise. Um, the reason that this Supreme Court vacancy adds another layer of importance for state elections in 2020 is that if you now have a cemented conservative 6-3 majority on the court, what we can expect, maybe not tomorrow or next month, but within the next few years, is that the Supreme Court is going to really start to solidify this conservative ideology of um, you know, either eliminating or scaling back or refusing to acknowledge a lot of the constitutional rights that have been recognized over the past few decades. So you take an issue like Roe v. Wade, and I think it's very possible that they will either, either overturn it or just, you know, death by a thousand cuts. They will make it so states essentially can outlaw it um, by just making it so hard to, uh, to create choice for women in their states. That doesn't mean that abortion will be outlawed in the nation. It means that this is an issue that's going to be kicked back to all of the states to decide. Mm -hmm. And so rather than having a federal policy saying that this is constitutional and everybody has to have access, uh, it will now go back to that patchwork where it was before Roe, where the state that you live in is going to determine whether you as a woman have access to health care. Um, there's a lot of issues like that. Uh, gun control, climate change, health care, all of these things, the Supreme Court is just going to back away from and decide that they have they want nothing to do with it. And so the states are going to have heightened importance because the people you elect to your state legislatures are now going to be the ones that are going to be deciding policy for your state on all those issues. So, you know, as if 2020 wasn't important enough with the election, the presidential election, the Senate, of course, Congress is up, um, the states and gerrymandering, it is now important 
um, I mean, it always was, but it's now even more important because we're looking now at this policy angle where states are really going to take this outsized um, amount of, of leadership on all of these issues. And I will say that when I started Sister District in 2016, the reason we decided to focus on state legislatures was specifically because of the gerrymandering issue and, and the fact that states control redistricting. But it has become clear to me over these past four years that an equally important reason that we must win power in states is because states are where we can make progress on these policy issues. I mean, look at coronavirus. Uh, we're seeing very little leadership from the federal level. And it turns out that the state you live in and the political party that controls the government in your state is determining whether the decisions made for your community about your safety are based on science and evidence or based on politics. I mean, that's that's just right. the truth. Um, so you take any issue like that, healthcare, you know, states have the ability to determine if they're going to expand Medicaid or not. And we still have states that are fighting over that. States even where voters have determined that they want the expansion and their Republicans in charge um, say they don't get it. So uh, this stuff is going to get more and we're gonna see it more and more. And hopefully that will spring a real awakening um, and get people to get more involved locally civically in their communities, because even though we don't hear about it in the national news, the decisions that your state legislators are making are probably affecting you more than whatever we're seeing out of uh, Washington right now. Hmm. So the, uh, the the effects of the mitigate or the, the effects of the Supreme Court being um, six to three can be somewhat mitigated then by actually the states asserting more of their own power basically what you're saying. I think that's right. And, you know, I also think that if you look at the last, you know, decade or so of jurisprudence coming out of the Supreme Court, you'll see that the conservatives, of course, have this real, um, real strong bent towards state rights. And so it's going to be interesting now, now that progressives, the way, the, the place for us to make progress right now is in the states, to be totally honest. That's where we can push forward. Um, and so we'll see where this conservative ideology of states' rights matches up with progressives now being strongly in favor of states' rights. And we'll see if that if that changes any minds of the uh, conservative justices or if they actually let the states do um, what they've said for so long that states should do. Yeah. Well, I think that uh, the the Republican Party has shown its ability to act in their own self-best interest. So they will... Um, and I'm not just picking on the Republicans at this point, but I think a lot of politicians will just say what's convenient for the moment. Uh, states' rights is a big thing until it isn't. Um, legislating from the bench is a big problem until it isn't. You know, so um, it just depends on the situation, who you ask, and 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 when you ask them. Um, but but exactly. I exactly, and I think you know judges tend to think of themselves as being more principled than politicians. I'm not sure that's true, um, but we're we're going to see. We're going to put it to the test. Good. Good. Well, um, what other groups, uh, getting back to such a sister district project uh, organization, um, what are the what are the groups are you coordinating with out there, or are you coordinating with other? There groups? are there are a lot of groups, a lot of grassroots and institutional established groups working on our side of the aisle right now, which is incredibly heartening. I would say one of uh, our biggest 
partners and allies is the DLCC, the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee. And that's kind of the Democratic arm that focuses on state legislatures. And so their mission and our mission are very much aligned. Um, Jessica Post, who is the president of that organization, has been in this fight for state legislatures for a decade. She was there in 2010 when kind of that heartbreak election took place and she saw all of this unfolding. Um, and now she is doing an amazing job of, of really getting the Democrats in line and making sure that we don't forget about states. And so we are um, very pleased to be able to partner with them. We do um, some events together. We have some candidates that we've jointly endorsed um, that we try to amplify and get the message out about and, uh, you know, I think we're in very, very good company with them and with so many other kind of grassroots groups that are are activated and engaged right now and are going to keep keep fighting for the change that we want to see. Good. And do you uh, consider the sister district project then to really be a part of the Democratic Party or are you just um, sort of aligned with them at this point because that's what's bringing uh you know, fairness to our elections. In the, you know, in the overall ecosystem, we're definitely not part of the party. Mm -hmm. um, we are, we are a nonprofit, we're a political nonprofit, we're an activist organization. Um, we certainly are on the progressive side of the aisle and certainly are aligned with the same values as the Democrats and the progressives. But in terms of being part of the infrastructure, we're removed from that. And I think that that, um, it's a nice place to be. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm a Democrat. I've been a Democrat my whole life and, and I will probably always vote Democrat unless something really bizarre happens. Um, and I have no problem with the Democrats, but I do think that you, by being outside of the party infrastructure, you can have a little bit more flexibility in your messaging and your tactics and your strategy. And we really are a volunteer focused organization. That is the beating heart of who we are. And a lot of people came to us right after the 2016 election because they weren't really sure what the party was doing. And, you know, I think there there was a lot of questions about, hey, we we thought you guys had this handled and you didn't. So, so then people woke up and they said, OK, I want to get involved, but they weren't really sure how to do it. And that's not a knock on the Democratic Party. I mean, it's incredibly hard to run that big of an institution and organization and make sure everybody knows what's going on. Um, but I do think that having organizations like Sister District, uh, where people can join in their community with their friends with a mission that is clear and makes sense with concrete action items and not to be bogged down by all of the things that the parties have to deal with. I think that that's an advantage. Yeah, that's good. Good. So um, what can our listeners or how can our listeners get involved in the Sister District Project? The first thing you can do is you can go to our website at sisterdistrict.com and you sign up to be a volunteer. And I will, I'll give you a little, um, a little inside info. Signing up doesn't mean you're committing yourself to anything, but if you sign up and you give us your zip code, we can connect you with the people in your area, in your community that are organizing. And so you'll actually get put into a team in your community. And of course, before the pandemic, people were meeting in person, but now it's, it's all online, but in a way that makes it easier for anybody in the country to get involved. And then once you're on your team with your community, you will get information about action items you can take to help your candidate that's been assigned to your group get elected. And those include small dollar donations, phone banking, writing postcards, 
there, these are little action items that everybody can do. You can do it no matter where you live. You can do it no matter how much time or resources you have. And what I'd like to say to people is, you know, we have five weeks. We have five weeks until this election happens. And the next five weeks are going to determine, it, at least in the case of states, the next 10 years, because that's how long redistricting lasts for. And so do whatever you can and then do a little bit more and get your friends to do it and get your families to do it because this is it. There, act there are so many things that can still be done. The number one thing you can be doing right now is making phone calls and we curate these volunteer actions so that you know whatever you're doing with Sister District, you're, you're doing what is needed for the campaign and you're doing it for a campaign that is strategic for Democrats that's going to have kind of a larger impact um, on, the, on our, our representation in the country. So I encourage everybody go to the website, sisterdistrict.com, sign up to volunteer, at least start getting our information and then do as much as you possibly can between now and the election. So you pointed out that the elections are five weeks from now. Um, so a lot of people might say, well, it's too late by the time I volunteer, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, uh, it, 2022 is around the corner, right? The, the big thing about 2020, of course, is that uh, district lines will be drawn based upon the census. But uh, it's not too early to start thinking about the next election cycle, correct? Absolutely true. And I think that, um, you know, that's going to be something that the left is going to have to really internalize that it doesn't end on November 3rd. It only works. All this work we did over the past four years only has an effect if we keep pushing, because the second you, you stop pushing, that's when the other side kind of overwhelms. I mean, I guarantee you that the Republicans are never going to stop pushing. Um, so it's a really important point. Thanks for bringing that up, that this is never over. Civic engagement has to become part of all of our lives uh, for the rest of our lives. And that's how we kind of keep moving down the path. Good. You know, I was just going to mention, too, one thing that sort of disappointed me about this time around that this election right here, at least on a local level, as I live in uh, District 97, State District 97 of, of uh, Missouri, um, the Republican there, um, she's running unopposed. Right. And, and this is not unusual for um, this area to have your district so gerrymandered or so fixed, the word fixed in quotes, that uh, Democrats uh, or any other party really doesn't even show up. Yeah, that's a big problem. And that was a big problem in 2016 and, and previously. Um, you know, you look at Virginia as the example where Republicans held I think 66 out of 100 seats in the House of Delegates, even though they, you know, didn't have a majority of votes. Um, but I think that 40, 40 of their seats were unopposed or something ridiculous like that. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, it's absolutely true that if you want to win, you actually have to play the game. And I think Democrats have gotten better about that over the past four years and have seen that it is worth fighting, even if all the signs point to the fact that you might not win, because then at least you're making your case. And at least you're making the other side fight for it and defend their seat. And in many cases, you actually surprise people and you actually can win those districts. So it's a great point. Absolutely. We cannot give up on any part of the country, any level of government. I mean, these are all places that should be in play. And look, if any of your listeners want to run for office, I say do it. There are thousands of 
positions at even the local and municipal level. Get involved and start working your way up the pipeline. You know, you're not going to run for Senate tomorrow, but you might run for county commissioner and, and make your way up. You know, never forget that Barack Obama started as a state senator in Illinois. That's how it happens. So there are lots of opportunities. You are the one that has to do it. Nobody else is going to do it. And if we want real change, we all have to be a part of that. As I used to tell my son, you can't hit a home run if you don't go up to the plate and take a swing at the ball. So true. So uh, is there anything else you'd like to add before we uh, conclude this uh, discussion? I think the only other thing I would say to people right now, because there's a lot of angst on our side, and I think a lot of that is residual from 2016, maybe thinking we were going to win and then and then not winning. And there's... Um, there's almost a hesitation to even imagine the possibility that Democrats might win the presidency or the Senate or any of these other races. And I share that anxiety. Maybe that's just wired in. But I will also say that I'm more hopeful now than I probably ever have been in my life. And I think that's largely because I have finally begun to understand the difference between optimism and hope. And so optimism is where you think that everything's going to work out without even trying. It's just going to work out on its own. And I, I don't subscribe to that belief. Mm -hmm. But hope is where you things might be bad and they might not get better tomorrow. But you recognize and acknowledge that the future isn't written yet and your actions can make a difference. And so that's what I'm hanging my hat on. And I heard Stacey Abrams say recently that she's not optimistic or pessimistic, she's determined and she's going to do everything she possibly can, everything in her power to make sure that we see the change we want to see. And so that's what I would leave everybody with is try not to go down that whirlpool of that this is all a foregone conclusion and the system is rigged and, and nothing good is ever going to happen. I, I get that mindset, but keep yourself away from that and remind yourself that there is hope because we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what we don't know. And the things you do today and tomorrow and every day after that can make a difference. Hmm. That's a good philosophy for life in general. And let's, let's hope we can all stick to it. <laughs> yeah. So we've been talking with Rita Bosworth, the founder and executive director of the Sister District Project. Rita, uh, thank you for stopping by to chat with us this evening and please keep up the good work. Many thanks. It was great to be here. And thank you for tuning in to the Alliance Party After Dark podcast. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss any episodes. Each week, we'll bring you interesting topics from the Alliance Party. You may subscribe on iTunes, Google, or Spotify. Also, keep in mind that the podcast has a Twitter page at Alliance On Air. And if you have any suggestions for future topics or people we might want to interview in a future podcast, please drop us an email at podcast at theallianceparty.com. All content for this podcast is copyright The Alliance Party. Views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of The Alliance Party. This podcast is a production of The Alliance Party, a decades-long movement of fiscally conservative, moderate, accountable, and reasoned independents, former Democrats, former Republicans, and alienated voters who demand that our elected officials work in the spirit of nonpartisanship for all constituents and provide a better future for our country. This podcast was made possible by your donations to the Alliance Party. If you'd like to join the Alliance Party, visit our website at theallianceparty.com. Drop in and see what we're all about, and get involved. 
Volunteer your time, make a donation, submit an article or blog, or run for office. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Dan Schaefer, producer of the Alliance Party After Dark, and on behalf of everyone at the Alliance Party, have a wonderful evening, a great week ahead, and we hope you drop in for our next show. Be safe, be aware, and please take care of yourself and those around you.